Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are... This is... I guess uh, this is the second episode of the Biden administration. Uh, week flies by. Uh, <laughs> I've lost all I've lost all sense of time. But uh, last in last week's episode, we were recording just uh, I think about two hours, two or three hours after the new president had been sworn in. We are now a week in. Uh, it's hard to say if things are, uh, you know. Are things different than one would have thought? Are they more eventful? Are they less eventful? I think it's about how what I would have expected. We have, uh, to me, the very expected uh, prospect of of Senate Republicans quickly kind of shaking off the whole insurrection thing and 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 deciding we need you know kind of no harm no foul we're not dead let's let's move on. Uh, and you had this standoff, kind of very ornate and notional standoff in the organization of the Senate. And let's back up a a bit to just explain what that means. Basically, you know, each Congress lasts for two years, right? They said, I don't even know what number we're on. It's like the 120th Congress. I can't remember. In any case, uh, and at the beginning of each of those, each body, but it's more important in the Senate tends to be because the rules are a little, 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 uh, a little more complicated, uh, does an organizing resolution. And that's basically kind of like coming up with a constitution for the Senate for the next two years. Here are the rules that we're going to do, and you pass it. And and in most cases, that is just uh, taking the rules from from the last Congress and just voting on them again and moving ahead. Where, where it sometimes gets a little more uh, dicey is you have to decide how many seats does the minority have on each uh, on each committee and how many seats does the majority have now um that should be in general it should be proportional to how many seats they have but the math is never exact right so there's a little fiddling there but in this case you had this almost like a almost like a shadow battle over the filibuster. Now we all know about the filibuster, which uh, in 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 various forms goes back almost a couple hundred years, uh, but became a big deal as a tool to defend the Jim Crow system in the South. And in the last twenty years or so, maybe twenty five years, has gone has evolved in such a way that in practice. Aside from some budgetary issues, you need 60 votes to pass things in the House. That's I'm sorry, in the Senate. And that's just treated as kind of that's the system now. And and we have grown up all of these 
all of these rationales for why that makes sense. It's somewhat similar to the rationales that people now use uh, to defend the Electoral College. You know, the Electoral College has people say it was it was created to defend slavery. That's not really true. That was it's it's sort of an indirect consequence of that. It's related to it. But really, it, it, it has to do with uh, getting, getting the states on board and getting the small states to buy into the system. Um, and that's not, you know, that, that's pretty archaic and not really terribly relevant now. But we have all these new things like, oh, no one will ever, no one will ever campaign for Wyoming again and Rhode Island. And, you know, as, as, as though that happened. In any case, so we had this proxy battle where the Democrats should abolish the filibuster right now. I think the overwhelming majority of them want to abolish it right now. But you have at least two who just say, no, don't want to do that. And that's Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And why exactly Kirsten Cinema is kind of where she is right now politically, it's kind of a mystery to me. It, it's, 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 I was actually talking to one of our colleagues about this and, and explaining some, some of... Uh, cinema's uh, backstory, and it's 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 quite strange that she's now kind of you know BFF with Joe Manchin. Uh, you know, it's purple state. She can't, you know, she needs to kind of uh, do her you know kind of moderate creds, but she's way beyond that. In any case, so they say it's not going to happen. So for right now, it's not going to happen. We know that, and that's unfortunate. But even the people who are kind of like hardcore. Uh, filibuster reformers know that that's kind of where we are. But what Joe, uh, what Mitch McConnell wanted was to say, all right, you guys have to agree, you know, pinky swear or cross your heart and die that you will not tamper with the filibuster during this Congress or maybe till the end of time, but kind of same difference, right? Okay. And now in practice, the majority can't bind itself like that. They could put in a rule that says the filibuster till the end of time, but they could they could always, whenever they wanted to, say, all right, fuck this, 50 votes, we're done. Here's the filibuster. So you, you can't really do this, but this was a way for McConnell to unite his caucus, which has been, you know, had a tumultuous few weeks, let's put it that way, get them kind of all uh, on, you know, on side. And also to sow some divisions among the Democrats, which obviously it did successfully. I mean, McConnell's a smart guy. He is a smart, smart guy. He may be evil, but he's a smart guy. And, it, and, and it's, it's foolish ever to, uh, ever to forget that. Uh, and it kind of seemed like they might get that. Right. And this would have been, even though, again, it's sort of a shadow battle, it was a way for McConnell to do a couple things. One, and the, the, the most important of which is kind of to say, look, I'm the minority leader, but I still run this place. Let's be honest. And to kind of set the tone for who's calling the shots. And the other thing, uh, Beyond that, well, that that's really <laughs> that is really the 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 big thing to kind of show he's in charge 
and and he it was also his way of going back and saying hey i i had this system that worked with these guys great under obama and like it'll work again i mean joe biden worked for obama and joe biden is kind of one of the old guys who i worked with here for decades in the senate so let's give this a shot and uh, and this is something I'm, I'm curious to ask uh, Kate what she's heard about this, because a few days ago, Chuck Schumer, who is the now the majority leader, uh, went to the Senate floor and basically said, you know what, we're not agreeing to that. That's not reasonable and it's not going to happen. And no. And that was a good sign. But McConnell, I think, was basically happy to say, OK, let's just stay with his standoff. And uh, we still run the committees, and I'm still kind of jerking you around, and uh, I'm in no rush. You know, <laughs> let's let's continue with me, half majority leader, and 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 uh, kind of so dissent on on your side. And then, uh, God, I'm even losing track of what day it was. I think it was yesterday. It was the day before yesterday. In any case, McConnell, there was this weird thing that happened where Manchin came out and gave a couple, you know, very focused interviews and said, even if, uh, you know, even if, if Superman comes and tells me I have to get rid of the filibuster, I will not do it. Under no condition will I ever get rid of, you know, kind of, no, no, no end to the filibuster. And Cinema kind of did the same thing. And then, to my great surprise, honestly, McConnell, a few hours later, is like, okay, yeah, that's what I needed. Good to go. Let's move ahead. But the thing was, is that they, they'd been saying that for weeks, which is the problem. That is unfortunate, but that's where we were. And uh, so... I'm curious to find out a little more about what actually led to that. So that is, uh, that's one thing we're going to talk about uh, on today's episode. We're just going to talk about, you know, here we are chilling in the Biden era, you know, everything's moving along swimmingly. So before we do that, uh, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. It's made from special 100% Arabica beans, French chicory. I always wanted like Arabica beans. Like I've been hearing this since I was a little kid in all the coffee commercials. Like got the Arabica ones, man. Well, (laughs) here's the thing. It's uh, Robusta or Arabica. And I think Robusta tends to be more bitter and kind of less nuanced. And I think Arabica are the... The chef's kiss, primo so coffee bean. So it's not, it's not kind of, but but when you say robusto, it, it's not in the sense of kind of like, like I like spicy food. It's not like oh, some people like, oh, I dig the robusto. It's like robusto. <laughs> it's got a little, like, it's kind of the crappy stuff. I think so. Although I'm not, I'm no barista. So, right, you know, right. listeners don't, uh, yeah, don't come. the patrician bean. Don't add yeah. me on, <laughs> yeah. on this. Okay. But well, I think, any, yeah. We, in any case, clearly it's the good stuff, and it's it's a hundred percent of that stuff in 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 Grady's. And also, you got the French chicory and the signature spices, and it's and uh, it's brewed overnight to give you a, a velvety smooth cup. You can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a cocktail. You can see I'm kind of kind of winging, kind of improvise, <laughs> semi improvising the copy here. Yeah, have we it, heard about the long cold winter yet? <laughs> well, no, I, I took I took that, but yeah, I took that part out. 
So anyway, treat yourself to a gourmet cup of coffee without stepping foot outside. All for less than a buck a cup. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, it's got the Arabica Arabica (laughs) stuff and none of the Robusto stuff, which I guess is just like the kind of the... the, the, Second-class coffee beans. Well, you know, when you're like a woodworker like myself, you got you have first-grade, second-grade wood and stuff, and, and the second-grade, and even there's stuff that's basically third-grade, there's a different name for it. It's got knots. It's kind of bent and shit like that. So clearly, Arabica is like the kind of the clean lumber <laughs> of the coffee world. No knots, no warp, you know, nice straight grain. <laughs> right. All right, my co-host, David and Kate, what, what is going on? You know what I have to say? I don't know how you how you both are feeling about this, but the the transition to the Biden era has been I don't know more stark or has been more of an adjustment than I I guess expected. You know, I think we've been so used to four years of nonstop Trump insanity that it's when you kind of emerge into press briefings that are informative or at least kind of civil between you know both sides, or you have a an administration that has a coordinated information rollout, including, you know, briefings with uh, administration officials and embargoes and things like that, and kind of an actual working government. It's just kind of striking. I don't know. Kate, has that been your sense? Like, it's just felt like it's taken a, a little bit to get used to um, the way things were, so to speak. Although, you know, not that everything is back to normal overnight, but, um, you know, Trump has disappeared so quickly that it's it's like a whiplash kind of thing almost. Yeah, I mean, I would say I've been mostly focused on and reporting on what's been happening in the Senate, and it makes it a little difficult to kind of be like, oh, good, our functional democracy is back when, you know, the Senate was ground to a halt in the first few days. And, you know, it just it really brings you right back to the Obama era where you're like, yeah, this administration has some pretty cool ideas would be neat if we could see them get anywhere, you know. Right. I know Marsha Blackburn tweeted uh, a couple hours ago, something like, Joe Biden, you can't just govern with a phone and a pen, all these executive orders. How, you know, that's no way to run a country. And, you, you know, of course, Marcia. people dug through her Twitter feed and there were a number of tweets about Trump's executive orders helping the American people and being great for the country. And yeah, so we're, we're kind of back to the uh, back to the way things were. <laughs> one, 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 th- one thing that's striking about the you mentioned with like the Jen Psaki, uh, uh, you know, press briefings, you get in each of those, you get some information. Right. Like, okay, this and they announced this and that and they got, you know, some answers on this question. And, uh, you know, they're not the most exciting things are not kind of supposed to be. I mean, again, in the in the before times, you just had one of these every day. And, you know, if there's big news going on, they might make news, but it's just an everyday thing. And what uh, struck me is that in the well, really throughout the uh, Trump administration, you never had any new information come out of those briefings, partly because whoever was the press secretary at that time, there's so much like lying and stuff that even if they'd said something, it wasn't, it wouldn't be clear it was true or that it was going to happen. But mainly they became a, a kind of a jousting match in which the press secretary would sort of try to do, you know, kind of sick burns on the reporters 
to to play up to Trump. And the I'm not I'm not sure I would say it was what the reporters were looking for, but kind of the newsworthiness was just what kind of antics there would be and 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 just sort of silly right. things. Do you remember would get the said. whole drama over Jim Acosta allegedly kind of yanking a microphone out of a press aide's hand or something, and then his credentials were revoked, and this was like a whole that was like a whole week long saga and. Um, Right. No, I think wasn't it that he was he was asking a question and the little the little person who kind of walks around with the microphone, uh, someone said, all right, you know, take the microphone from him. And he's like, no, no, no. You know, and there was like a little little scuffle. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, I, too, am like all for the you know, we're not attacking the press anymore. However, those press briefings were a convenient forum, I think, for reporters <laughs> to raise their national profile. And, you know, 100%. much love to Jim Acosta, but he definitely kind of thrived in that role of, of you know, Trump antagonizer type. No, and all, all of them, it would be, and, and, you know, in some cases it was righteous, but, but in other cases <laughs> yeah. with a lot of, it, it almost became sort of like a, uh, you know the the running of the bulls in Pamplona, right? That you get, you know, like, oh, here's some new young reporter I haven't seen before, and 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 that person would go like, okay, so so COVID, um, we're up to ninety seven million deaths. What the fuck? And what possible? How can you live with yourself? <laughs> Thank you. That's my question. And and you know, so every everything kind of it it did become everybody became part of the Trump spectacle. And I, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to give, uh, you know, people too much grief. I mean, that was a, that was a very tough assignment. And, um, at some level, I think everybody became, those were the only people who could sort of speak back to the administration. And so it was a key thing, but it also became very different from, in some ways, trying to get information, at least in the same way. I'm not, and again, I, I can, I can, I can already hear the sort of the the the, <laughs> the pushback I'm going to get on this. But in a lot of cases, you know, you're not going to get the information. You've got to try. You've got to state the question because you should get the information. But you kind of know you're not going to get the information because it's it's uh, it's uh, it's Trump. I just rem- I I. I uh, I just, as I was talking, I, I remembered, I I noted that I'd forgotten McEnany's first name. I mean, I guess mm. I'm, I'm moving on. Kay- Kaylee, yeah, not, exactly. I'm not looking back. Kaylee, yeah. Right. Kaylee spelled with as many vowels as possible. I misspelled that name every single time. It is I wrote a, it. <laughs> yeah, it was hard to, um, hard to get the spelling correct at first. So anyways, Kate, let's get back to the, um, to the filibuster. You had an interesting story that went up kind of at the end of the day last night, yesterday afternoon, uh, talking to, I believe Harry Reid's former spokesperson, Jim Manley, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, who had an, I don't, I guess it was someone else you talked to, um, in that piece who had a, a great quote you used for the headline, which is that Senate rules are written in stone until they're not anymore. And so like Josh was saying, and like we've been talking about, it makes sense to some extent, the Democrats aren't, first of all, they don't have the votes to kill the filibuster right now. And it's maybe it wouldn't make sense to do that over just like a procedural kind of wrangling over who's, you know, the the kind of power sharing agreement. But from your reporting, it seems like 
what could ultimately move the dial on that is Republicans blocking a huge piece of legislation. So, for instance, the COVID relief package President Biden is pushing and Democrats want to get through Congress. Uh, that could be an issue. Um, probably lots of other things, you know, potentially in the future. But tell us kind of about just what you've been hearing about the future of the filibuster. Um, I don't know, arguments for getting rid of it, arguments for keeping it, just kind of what's uh, what's what's been going around. Yeah, so the plan, as soon as I started kind of reporting on this, which was even months before the November election, um, back in a time when Democrats anticipated having a bigger majority in the Senate. So, you know, if they had gotten kind of those five or six seats we were watching coming into November, there would have been a little more room for filibuster abolishment dreams, you know, there that would have been the kind of numbers where you can be like, okay, Manchin, he voted against uh, the nuclear option on the filibuster back when Harry Reid did it in 2013. So, you know, he's been pretty consistently against it. So you could kind of separate those people out and still think that there's a chance to abolish the filibuster. Now, of course, the elections didn't go that way. Democrats did not win most of those Senate seats. Um, and then it's a different reality. But still, everyone I talked to said if there's any chance of abolishing the filibuster, it's going to be when there's a really big, needed, extremely popular piece of legislation that Democrats can bring to the floor and say to the American people, hey, we tried to get you X, Y, Z, and Republicans wouldn't let us. And now we have to blow up this thing that I think most people don't even know what it is anyway. So, you know, crafting it in this way, that's very, um, you know, that's very optics wise good. Um, and a lot of the thinking has been that it will be framed around something super easy for people to understand. Uh, raising the minimum wage is one that's been coming up more and more recently, as it seems like it's going to have to drop out of the uh, COVID relief package if they go the budget reconciliation route. For a while, it was um, the direct COVID checks was what was getting talked about the most. So something like that that's super tangible. Uh, it's going to help everybody. The polling on it, there's no way it's not going to be good. Do we do we know where Mansion is on the minimum wage? I don't think so. Because he, he, what occurs to me is that I mean, it seems to me, and I certainly hope, because as much as it might be kind of fun to have a, a showdown, they just need to pass the COVID relief thing like right, right away and not get into nonsense about, you know, dicking around with a couple of Republicans trying to bring them over. That just needs to happen. So I think and and it and it seems like from or from what I heard that Bernie Sanders is already kind of starting. He, he's the uh, banking committee chair, I, mm -hmm. I believe. And so he's already kind of starting the process that you do to do a, what's called reconciliation, which is basically kind of a, you know, you put it in the budget thing. Those things can't be filibustered, blah, 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 blah. But it seems to me the chances is, is that you want some other piece of legislation that is a very popular and that Joe Manchin and or Kirsten Cinema is for. Mm hmm. And basically, and, and so something they're voting for can't even get to a vote. And then you start to kind of use that as leverage to kind of pry the thing open. Right. And so in that sense, like I've been, I mean, obviously a, a climate bill is not going to be that one for Joe Manchin. You know, he's from a coal state and that just is how, you know, that is how it is on that issue. Um, so I've been wondering, like, what are those issues potentially for him? Yeah. And... So his particular position on the minimum wage becomes pretty 
significant. Right. That's something I'd have to look into, but I guess, you know, it occurs to you immediately. West Virginia is also a very poor state, so it would seem that that would be appealing. Also, the minimum wage is something that polls incredibly well with everyone except for rich Republicans. Even working class Republicans tend to be in favor of the minimum wage. So, you know, it, it's really not a, a polarizing issue outside of Congress. Um, and the only reason I bring that up is because there's just been a lot of chatter that, um, you know, the Senate parliamentarian, if they go the budget reconciliation route, will have to kind of look at every piece of that package and determine if it does actually belong in a budget bill or not. Um, and, you know, Bernie's going, you know, all, all in for the minimum wage being in there. But it seems from from what I've been hearing that that's probably going to drop out. But um, there's a, yeah, there's also another another issue that, again, is sort of insidery insidery. Is that you know the Senate parliamentarian? That's not like someone in the Constitution. That's just the advisor to the Senate. They're mm-hmm. subject to the majority. So that now, for obvious reasons, there there are um, there's a lot of hesitance to overrule that person. A lot of it for good reason, um, but you can do it. I, I I don't remember the you know kind of all the kind of the jargon they use and but what it really comes down to the majority can say up oh, interesting idea i think we're going to go you know we're going to sort of like what you do when you don't hire someone we're going in a different direction mm-hmm. right <laughs> um so that is another thing to consider uh that might you know come into come into play here right but i do think the thinking is kind of along with what you're saying josh which is that democrats don't want to have the showdown on pieces of the covid bill because it's seen as just like critically, critically important. It's already, even if they go budget reconciliation route, which would require a simple majority and wouldn't uh, require the cooperation of Republicans, you know, everyone I've talked to says there's no way that's getting done until at least March. It's a long, complicated process. Um, And so, you know, there's been some proposals, especially on the House side, their idea is, um, checks and shots, the idea of taking out those two very popular parts, the direct payment checks to people and uh, money for vaccination and passing that by itself, which, you know, part of you is like, okay, that would get a bipartisan response. It would get passed right away. But then as you're taking out the, the popular parts of the budget relief package, which would make the less popular parts harder to pass, you know? So I think that's uh, a consideration as well. What I was wondering, and again, and this is a larger point that Democrats in general need to understand that all the kind of the arcana of the Senate, you know, it's important to have some people who know that stuff figuring it out, but it should never make its way into the public com- you know, conversation. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you can try to pass something through normal order and then it doesn't work. And then you say, okay, fine, doing it in reconciliation. It's possible that, that, that there's some rule that you can't kind of double dip like that. I'd be curious we should we should find out but with the with the two thousand dollar checks it seems to me like if you could do that you could say fine let's just go on a 50 50 vote and let's just get all you guys to vote against it that'll be cool and then we'll have that in two years to run against you on um and with the vaccines you know with the vaccine stuff get you to vote against that too so if you uh or or or, or force them to block it. I mean, Democrats just need a better way to um, 
illustrate the filibuster, right? Because it always ends up being, ah, Democrats couldn't get it done. Democrats failed to, failed on a procedural motion. And you don't, and and the headline is not, you know, Republicans voted against it or something like that. Um, But in general, Republicans are, are just more savvy about, you know, border basically test votes. Let's kind of like, let's get you guys on the record voting against all this popular stuff, right? Um, So I don't know. But again, it's possible. I I just, I've never been one of the people who kind of gets all the ins and outs of of these procedures. It's possible you can't double dip like that. Once you've tried to do something through normal order, you you can't, you know, take a second run at it through reconciliation. Well, and there's something you said that is resonant to me, which is kind of, the Democrats' messaging issues here. And I think in some ways they're benefiting from the fact that McConnell has been an obstructionist for so long that McConnell obstructing things is not a headline. You know, Biden failing at his unity project is more of like a new angle to that story that we've heard before. And I think that's hurting them a bit. But, you know, kind of going back to this filibuster standoff, um, part of it, I think, is that McConnell wanted, he knows that there's going to be a filibuster fight at some point, or that Democrats are going to use it as a cudgel at some point, whether or not they can get Cinema and Manchin on board. And he would rather have that fight over, you know, this arcane kind of piece of Senate procedure than what we were talking about before, the tangible, popular things Americans want. But to that effect, I completely agree with you, Josh, that I am so baffled as to why he stood down. It seemed to me that he had everybody right where he wanted them with the, you know, the dragging out the standoff only helps him, you know, he yeah. has no reason to cave. And everyone who I talked to, who, you know, inside and outside the Senate basically told me Democrats have no options right now. You know, there's nothing for them to do because as soon as I think Schumer was under enormous pressure to show that they're not going to cave to the freaking minority leader their first few days in office. And he did that. And I agree with you. That was, it was good that he was like strong and take no prisoners about that. But then Okay, fine. So you're not going to accede to his request, which also kind of takes that option off the table, which I was thinking they might do, which is kind of a, okay, we won't do the filibuster for now or write it in some kind of like weird, vague way that they can go back on months later or something. Um, So but you didn't have that. That option was off the table. So it's like, okay, what's left? Blow up the filibuster now, which they clearly didn't have the votes to do or wait till McConnell caves, you know, and that's the option that they basically chose. And he did. Um, I think to me, I I, there's 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 uh, uh, there's two things about this. Um, The first is and again, I was sort of baffled by it. And I think what that means is that there was some significant part of the equation that was not publicly visible that was driving things because I, the Democrats actually did have one thing they could do and I and I think they should have done if he hadn't caved which is basically saying since the since the standing issue is basically who controls the committees Schumer can say all right I'm not taking any of the nominees through any of the committees forget the committees we're just going to bring everything directly to the floor so g- fine go ahead running your committees but we're not we don't really need to you know, we don't need the committees to do the stuff that would have put some pressure in the opposite direction. I suspect that behind the scenes, McConnell knew he was going to lose this 
And so this was a this was a kind of a face saving retreat. And I think it's also possible that those interviews by Manchin was part of that, that everyone was in on. Like, go ahead and just kind of say it again, you know, give him something to grab onto. So if he was going to lose it, how was he going to lose it? And I think somehow or another, I, I, I think they had something up their sleeve where they were saying, look, we're going to do this with 50 votes. And then you will be, you will really have lost. So let's not do that. Why don't you just kind of stand down? I think that is the only explanation because, again, why else would he why else would he stand down like that? There's just no I mean, he really kind of had the Democrats over a barrel and and in a bad position. So there's something they brought to bear there that we don't know about. And it is it is just possible that it was Biden's influence making it possible to have McConnell be able to stand down without really getting humiliated. Just because that's kind of his shtick. So in any case, I think there's something major that we do not know. Yeah, that's kind of my read on the situation as well. Um, I also think that the gamble that McConnell was taking by having this fight now was, you know, a pretty big one because he was putting them in this impossible position and making giving the moderates fewer outs, you know, they didn't have as many options. And one of those is to abolish the filibuster. All this being said, something else I don't understand going under the category of things we don't understand about Kristen Cinema is I, I don't get the political calculus of putting out the statement she did the statement that I'm against changing the filibuster and I will never change my mind. I don't get that. I don't, even if she thinks she will be against abolishing the filibuster for all time, which again, dumb, stupid, ridiculous. She's not from a red state. But why say it? Why not let Democrats have that cudgel? Why not be a little squishy on it in public? So next time McConnell's being obstructive, Schumer actually has a bit of a, you know, a leg to stand on. If she's like, I will never for the rest of my life be in favor of the filibuster, that just kind of strips away one of the few weapons that Democrats have and will need in such a you know, a really evenly split Congress. Right. Go ahead. Sorry, I, um, I wonder if we could just spend the last couple minutes of the episode or the last little bit that we have looking a little forward to the impeachment trial coming up on, I guess, February 8th, right? Um, a little more than a week away from now. Uh, the article of impeachment was transferred, I guess, Monday night. Was that right? Um, sounds right. And... You know, who knows what sort of Trump malfeasance will come out between now and then. Already we had last Friday the New York Times report that Trump tried to cozy up with the DOJ attorney to, you know, further his efforts to undermine the election. The inspector general for the Justice Department is looking into that now. Um, Kate, is there anything, you know, yesterday we had a, a vote, I guess, a Rand Paul motion to declare the trial unconstitutional. All but five Republicans voted along with him, including Mitch McConnell, who I guess privately has said, oh, he wants Trump gone forever. He's done with Trump. Um, and yet he at least took this kind of procedural vote to to back up the former president. What, what are you expecting in the impeachment trial? Anything our listeners should kind of have in their heads as we as we approach 
Trump's second impeachment trial in, I guess, like the last year, right? <laughs> Never been seen before, as Trump would like to say. Yeah. I don't know. Impeachment is just dumb at this point to me. I always... I, okay, I was just always of the mind that there's absolutely no freaking way you get 17 Republicans to vote for conviction. And I felt that way even in the hours after the insurrection, where, which is the time I think there was the most chance to get Republicans to vote against him. Um, 17 is just way too much. Like That's just going beyond deep into the benches of kind of the more right-wing Republicans. And yeah, we, I mean, we saw from, it was just a procedural vote, but on Rand Paul's resolution that the trial is unconstitutional, all but five Republicans voted for it. And of course they did, you know? I mean, who's surprised? And the people who said that the trial was constitutional on that motion were the usual suspects. Um, so, you know, Rand Paul came out very triumphantly, told reporters uh, impeachment is dead on arrival. And, you know, and to some way you don't want to do his... Uh, PR work for him. And I do think there's merit to having a trial, even if he won't be convicted, just because, I don't know, you've got to do something. But yeah, there's absolutely no chance that he's going to be convicted. I'm sure he knows that. I would be surprised if all five of those Republicans who voted procedurally saying that the trial is constitutional and should proceed will end up voting for conviction. Um, You know, I think we might end up seeing Romney plus a couple this time. But yeah, I mean... Maybe Murkowski and Romney or something yeah. like that. Yeah, even though, you know, she was being a, a little squishy yesterday. So uh, we'll see. But yeah, that McConnell PR campaign of I'm so furious at Trump and I will bring down the hammer of justice. Absolutely. Yeah, right. You know, I think he was pissed that Trump lost Georgia for them and was <laughs> talking a big game and is now kind of uh, back where he was. And the threat of the impeachment trial, which is what we've been talking about for weeks, which is... As we've we've been going over, the Senate situation is weird and they have, you know, they're trying to do multiple things, including, you know, figure out what they're going to do about the filibuster because that's going to come up again, Fill up, figure out what they can do via re- reconciliation. They're still having these, you know, gang of whatever meetings with the more reasonable Republicans kind of pretending like we're going to do this on a bipartisan way. Um, And it's just the trial, you know, despite the Biden administration's efforts, is going to suck up the chamber's time. And that's all they're going to be doing for a while. And the real big crux of everything we've been talking about is that for the past four years, the party that's gone into the midterms with all three branches of government loses one of them in the midterms. And you know they're aware of that. So that realistically, it's two years before we have those midterms with campaigning, which is like a legislative spike strip, you know, we only really have one year, maybe months, you know, to get anything real legislatively done. Um, And so that just means the decisions they make in these early months are really important. And it seems to me that right now, probably because of the filibuster and the fact that I assume Manchin and Cinema aren't really depicting themselves as too flexible on it. And, you know, some people have told me that there might be two or three more hesitant Republic, uh, Democrats behind the scenes who aren't getting the ink, but who are similarly yeah, disinclined. I, I, to I, I, suspe- I suspect that is accurate. I, I would say that I would expect that there are as many as 10 Democrats who... Uh, you know, maybe you could get them there, but would be 
there'd be a lot of hesitation and and I sus- and I suspect a lot of them are going to be people who you might be surprised at even people who are kind of fairly progressive but they've just been there forever and can't get you know can't get their heads around I mean I I'm only I think I'm only thinking about him because of this kind of little mini scare he had yesterday with Senator Leahy but uh is is Leahy you know for for abolishing the filibuster I wouldn't be so sure Again, well, and he's it, just kind of old Senate guys who are just right. you know, kind of very stuck in their ways. And we're in a, which again, makes cinema baffling to me, but well, that's like the kind of situation we're in too right now is that we're talking about the filibuster in abstract terms, which also just, it makes it a hard conversation to have because who, I'm sure there are senators who are against it in theory, but you just, you can't even have that conversation really without the political pressures of the moment when they'll be called upon to use it. But, you know, this just all goes to the point that this is a fight that they're going to have sooner or later. And I think the Biden administration is aware, based on the number of briefings they've been doing with us reporters and the, you know, just the tons of executive orders they're rolling out every day. Like, part of that, you know, is to show themselves as a, a functioning, effective, efficient administration. But part of that is there is a real time limit on the on the period that Democrats know that they have power. Um, and so, you know, you can kind of do budget reconciliation a bit. They, they'll have the trial, but, you know, the, the actual work of the legislating, they can only kick down the can down the road so far before they have, you know, before there's a risk of losing one of the chambers and of making anything on the administration's wish list, you know, that much more remote. You know, w- one thing about... <laughs> Christian cinema is, it, it's it's really kind of baffling to me. And I don't know how much everyone is sort of familiar with her political backstory. Um, and I haven't gone back and, and refreshed my memory on every single front. But, you know, look, Arizona, Purple State, she clearly plans on being in the Senate for a long time. So she's going to, you know, kind of burnish those, those moderate credentials. Okay. Got it. You know, but my recollection is she basically kind of comes on the scene in the, in the Bush years, like anti Iraq war activism involved in protests, even kind of street theatery kind of protests. Right. And then I think, again, this part I may be off on, I think she first runs for state the state legislature in Arizona. Um, and in her early campaigns, she, uh, you know, kind of progressive Democrat, right? You know, as a lot were kind of coming up uh, through the process in, in, in the Bush years. And, you know, in the Bush years and in, in the Obama years. And in her early campaigns, she leaned very much into the fact that she's openly bisexual and also that she seems to be an atheist. I think technically now she just says she has no religious affiliation, no religion, not, not, you know, not kind of outwardly saying she's an atheist. Now, those things, um, obviously your, your, your sexual preference is not, is not mean you're conservative or, 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 or liberal, but publicly leaning into those two aspects of her identity obviously appeals to a certain part of the Democratic Party. Firsts, inclusion, you know. So that is kind of Kirsten Cinema in her first 
and second political incarnation, and the second is when she's when she uh, uh, runs for Congress and or, or you know gets elected to Congress, and she was in a Democratic seat. Then she runs for Senate statewide office that's a different thing some repositioning makes total sense and then after she gets into the senate suddenly there's things about like like stuff like this like kind of like being like you know uh joe filibuster not joe jane filibuster whatever you know and and something it's just, again, I, I get she's not going to be like a firebrand. Arizona, a lot of conservatives there, all that kind of stuff. But I I don't know what part of this makes her end up being like, again, Joe Manchin's BFF. And the person who's like deeply ideologically committed to the filibuster forever. <laughs> yeah. it It's like overkill for that state. And I don't quite get it. And again, this isn't, this isn't, um, it's, it's not even a criticism because sort of implicit in what I'm saying is that I don't think she needs to do this to kind of cover herself politically, right? It's, it's, it's more than is required for, for, you know, for political, for political positioning in, in Arizona. And it's also, she, you know, she's still, uh, has her, you know, she's still definitely the only person who who goes to the Senate floor wearing a pink wig. That's right? what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, she <laughs> clearly has, like, such a, he doesn't have a Joe Manchin-esque kind of, like, yeah. I'm a, a person of the Senate and I have gravitas. And, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's so, so I don't, I don't quite, and again, it's now treated as um, a given, well, Joe Manchin, obviously Kristen Cinema. I mean, she's, she's, you know, kind of the moderate's moderate. And I'm just still a little baffled by how she kind of came to occupy this uh, this space. Maybe, maybe it's precisely to kind of uh, mix it up a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, sexual orientation, uh Ir, ir, irreligiosity, uh, pink wigs, you know, kind of mix it up a little. But hey, I'm also hardcore in the filibuster. It Coming at you from every sense. side. No, it's yeah, it just it just is kind of odd, and I don't, I don't get it. And again, it's still kind of baffling to me. Um, uh, having had some sense of her like 15 years ago, I mean, it would be it, it would. It, you know, there's no perfect analogy, but my reaction would be something like if, you know, for you youngs now, uh, in, in 20 years, you got Ilhan Omar saying like, hey, I the filibuster is my thing and we really need to get the deficit under control. Right. Just like what? Wait, what happened here? What are you talking about? Well, That's and kind the of other, me and Kristen, Kirsten Cinema. The other part of it that I've considered is, is she kind of taking the stance on the filibuster to, you know, ratchet up her power among the Democratic caucus. I mean, how many jokes have we seen about how West Virginia is going to be, you know, paved in gold by the time that this uh, administration is over? But again, I keep going back to the statement she made where she said, I am against the filibuster. I'm not open to changing my mind against about the filibuster. And, you know, I did just write a story that was the whole the whole thing of it was people are against the filibuster until they're not anymore. But 
to me from the perspective of, okay, maybe she's just trying to like up her power and cachet in the Democratic caucus. That's a weird thing to say then because you're taking that option off the table. Like if you want to be, hey, I'm queen of the Senate, you got to care what I want. Wouldn't you be like, yeah, I'm, I'm against it right now, but check back, you know, check in, see where I am next time. It, 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 it is odd. And, and again, to me, her statements almost, I mean, they're over the top. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be buried with a copy of the <laughs> filibuster when I die, right? Just like, okay, come on. What are you talking about? What are you talking yeah. about? Whereas with Manchin, you know, it is, it is totally consistent with his whole shtick. Right. Right. Got to want to be bipartisan, want to kind of force everybody, blah, 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 you know, blah, 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 blah. And the other part of Manchin, too, is he is so politically protected because Democrats know they are not going to get another Democrat elected out of West Virginia, that Manchin is the best you can do. And the last, the last. Right, right. And Arizona, not so. You know, you can see another Democrat getting elected out of Arizona. I just don't think she's so protected. Yeah, it's it's odd. It is odd. All right, well, let's let's leave it at that, but we should, uh, we should come back to the cinema question maybe we can have her on the podcast and and talk yeah this over. she'd yeah, be a great guest yeah, we'd no. love to have we'd love to have you senator so yes, uh, yes. if you're listening come on but um come and explain uh, yourself <laughs> explain explain your very weird position on the filibuster <laughs> <laughs> convince right. us that it makes sense because we are unconvinced <laughs> debate me kirsten debate me <laughs> that's right right, right all right, right. Okay, well, remember, uh, Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. All that uh, Arabica beans and other good stuff. You can get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. See you next week. Later, people. Later, Kirsten. (laughs) Debate me. Bye. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.